Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus, and today it's two priests once again and a rabbi. I'm Carl Stevens, one of the priests. I'm Phyllis Spiegel, the other priest. And I'm Daniel Bogart, the rabbi. And uh, today we are going to be spending some time in chapter 11 of Exodus, but I should say first that we are all face-to-face today uh, because we are all we are recording in the cathedral in a big room, which is probably a little echoey for listeners, and we're Hello. all gathered around <laughs> a microphone. So uh, if the audio, audio quality is a little bit different, that is why. Um, and before we get into chapter 11, uh, let's do a little introduction. So uh, Phil, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Very excited that you're here. And uh, will you say a little bit about your community and um, your life? (laughs) (laughs) We have not time for that. Um, My community is fantastic. I was called about two and a half years ago to St. Anne in Westchester. And Rabbi Daniel has actually come and done an adult forum there. And so when he offers that, please take him up on that. It was fantastic. Um, so Westchester is pretty vibrant and, um, has an amazing community of, um, of folks who, who, who love a good sense of humor and, and who really enjoy being the people of God gathered together. So, um, I also am thrilled to be in this diocese, which has welcomed me heartily. So Mm. it's, 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 and even, you know, the chance to do this, having only been here for a little less than two and a half years is... Just a sign of great welcome and hospitality. So thank you. So where were you before this? I was in southwestern Virginia. um, So down in the Blacksburg area, Christiansburg area. Nice. So I'm a mountain girl from the Blue Ridge Mountains. All right. Well, we're really happy to have you. Um, And Daniel, you just got back from your nationwide tour. Yes, nationwide tour. That sounds so grand. It it was grand. (laughs) Or like insurance. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And how'd it go? Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. We were in uh, Los Angeles, Seattle, and Minneapolis, uh, two Lutheran seminaries, and uh, then a Methodist church. Okay. Uh, it was a lot of fun. All right. And did you, you showed the film, and then you had discussion? Is that how it worked? I, so all three of us who were uh, a part of the project were there, and uh, the producers would show short clips. We'd have a discussion, short clips, have a discussion, uh, and then actually in Seattle, we had a whole day uh, of sort of diversity, pluralism conversations uh, within the United Methodist Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian McLaren was there and joined us, and it was just really a nice day. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, today, too, is a nice day, we hope. <laughs> so, uh, chapter, yeah, how's that for a smooth transition? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, chapter 11, we are now getting to the big one. The Plague of Plagues. Um, and Phyllis, as our, as our guest today, would you like to start reading? And we'll just interrupt as usual as soon as, as, soon as you get a word out. So I was going to say, um, so I'm in the um, NIV, so I've, I've realized that you uh-huh. guests have to say that. Yeah, for uh-huh. a little bit of different um, translation. And um, I'll start reading hesitantly because you all tend to interrupt after about three words. So uh, yeah. I'm, I'm impressed we haven't interrupted already. <laughs> all right, I'll start with chapter 11. Um, now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. 
and when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. Okay, so let's jump in here for a second, because we change subjects almost immediately. Uh, why is this the last plague? I mean, other um, than 10 is a nice round number. Well, in a literary sense, it actually brings the story all the way around. So the story starts with the genocide of firstborn children, and it ends with the genocide of firstborn children. Uh-huh. And uh, what is a biblical term for that, Philip? Maybe you know it's, uh, is it chiasmic? Uh, I might be getting that wrong. Yeah, I was thinking bookend. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This will tell you the level of scholar you have yeah. sitting in this chair. It's a nice bookend. Right. Uh, but yeah, this, this I know from Robert Alter, and I haven't actually looked at it here, but that often uh, the literary form, uh, particularly of the Hebrew scriptures, is that you have similar events kind of lining up mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning and the end, and therefore they emphasize the thing that happens in the middle, which is like the unique event. Um, I don't know if I'm explaining that perfectly. but So in your mind, what, what is the middle event that it's... Well, I haven't really looked at it for Exodus, so it's a little dangerous for me even to bring it up. Um, and I'm not sure it works entirely that way here, but often like the cycles, like the Jacob cycle, say, uh, there are dreams in certain places, and those dreams kind of bookend, you know, mm-hmm. something, and often that something is the important ethical or moral realization that the person has mm. to have. Uh, so for Jacob, it might be um, his dream going to Laban and his dream before he goes and confronts Esau again on his way back into uh, the the land of Cana is uh, those are the bookends and in the middle of the ethical thing that happens is Laban cheats him out of Rachel uh, and then actually out of out of the goats or attempts to cheat him so the person who is known for trickery and cheating mm. has trickery practiced on him and it changes who he is so so in Exodus then we've got the struggle for liberation in the middle we've yeah. got the death of the firstborn at the beginning we've got the death of the firstborn at the end we've got the struggle for liberation that becomes highlighted here right which right. Is, is rather highlighted in Moses' life right because he was while he he was Free in Pharaoh's house, in a sense, he was not free to be culturally who he was. Mm-hmm. So that was a different type of enslavement. And mm-hmm. um, and then he goes and and um, he is um, in relationship with family, and um, God calls him and says, I'm, I'm, "I'm freeing you. Eat like this is not your place either." And, and now I'm calling you to a new place. And, and so there's this sort of cycle mm. of being called out of family and out of place to mm. being really gods. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's curious. So I'm just thinking it through. So you start with death of the firstborn and you end with this plague. And then you go uh, Moses in the river, first plague, Nile turned to blood. So mm-hmm. river, 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 river. And then you go... Uh, yeah. Uh, murder of the slave driver, and then Moses needing to be circum or his son needing to be circumcised. So blood debt to blood debt. So that puts in the middle maybe the burning bush. You know? That's exactly. I was thinking, I am. Yeah, know, I so am. Right. The, the revelation holds of up, I am. God's nature. Yeah. Which I think is an ultimate question that we're going to get to in chapter eleven. 
um, who is God and who gets to, to define the characteristics of God. Right. Yeah. Right. And what is the purpose of liberation? What is... Ooh. And even um, of captivity in that... Hmm. Huh. Because I think as you go from 11 to 12, um, the issue of captivity to freedom is, mm. is going to... Well, that's one of the messages I think we get throughout here, right, in this march towards Sinai, is this notion that we tend to treat as 21st century postmoderns liberation and freedom as values in and of themselves. And I think the Torah makes pretty clear that liberation and freedom are tools. Hmm. Yes. Tools in pursuit of some higher purpose or higher connection or right here we're talking about a connection to God and living according to the way that we understand uh, God wanting the world to be but um, right. and that sounds wonderful liberation is a, is a tool of God but liberation doesn't come without captivity first mm. and so it doesn't really sound as good to say yee-haw uh-huh. um, you know what am I captive to Right. Um, right. Gosh, what a simple idea, no, but profound. Liberation doesn't come without captivity first. Huh. I never yeah. thought of it that way. Well, this is all very countercultural already. Um, the thing I'm thinking of is a seminary professor who is very much into Stanley Hauerwas, um, who is, Phyllis can describe him better than me, maybe, but he's a, a famous Christian ethicist who apparently swore like a pirate. I was going to say, I, I can't was, use any of the words to yeah. describe them that I would use because we're on a public podcast. Right, right, right. Bleep, 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 bleep. Exactly. Wonderful man, very insightful. Bleep, yeah. bleep, bleep, bleep. And fairly <laughs> mean to his students, I think, too. Like, there, there are stories about him. But at any rate, this professor of mine, um, because of that, really questioned rights language, you know, like civil rights language or any kind of rights language, you know, is saying we should not constitute our lives around rights but around uh, love, I suppose, love and relationship, right? That This is more important. But it was very challenging for us as a class, and I'm still really challenged by it um, because of the great admiration I have for the civil rights movement, for instance, to think uh, that somehow they were off a little bit, you know, if they could only have, like, loved... America into a better state. They, I'm sorry, can you... Um, Martin Luther King Jr., the Southern... Yeah. Um, To me, that seems really kind of naive. Uh, And maybe it's not a really good description of what Howard Wass would say. It was kind of filtered through this one professor. But it brings us to that question of, you know, if these are tools and purpose of something else, maybe rights don't matter that much. Maybe they're not a given end. The end is something else, mm. and we make a mistake by acting as if they are. We, we, we might be straying a bit, but I, I think that it's a, it's a fundamental question to bring to a text like this. What is, in a, in a country that holds inalienable right, um, how does that conflict with a faith that holds to um, I am because you are? And without you being a full person of God, I am I am not a full person of God. Right. And so what does that mean for inalienable right? Um, and yeah. so we're going to well, get to hard questions in this text. It's a short text, but it's it's challenging. And, and it I think it brings it the very nature of it, um, really questions about who God is and who we are as people of God. Yeah. And in great theory, 
then that means we bring that question to our life. Hmm. Who am I as a person in my society, and who am I as a person of God in my society, and how does that um, stand in conflict with itself? Well, and, and almost immediately here we actually have something that we would consider a fairly fundamental right, which is the right to own property. Um, oh, and it's, you know... It's I was being, thinking the right to life, but... Well, that, <laughs> that too. That too. But you're right. We didn't get any further we, than we whatever. We haven't actually we, we're still, That's right. We're still, on, we're yeah. still on, on verse two. Yes, we're on the you. property. We're on, we're on the, the property, uh, Asking the neighbor for objects of silver and gold. Um, I like the fact that it's not demanding these of one's neighbor. Uh, but, uh, Daniel, what do we make of this? So right, we've actually got this tell people to borrow each person from his neighbor and each oh each man from his neighbor and each woman from hers objects of silver and gold. And the rabbis are really troubled by this word borrow. Thank you. I was like, what does borrow mean when you're never gonna see us again? We're stealing this. Like we're right. going, you know. It's like asking someone if you can borrow a Kleenex. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> or a cup of sugar for yeah. the brownie I'm gonna eat. <laughs> so there's all sorts of crazy apologetics that rabbis have worked out through the centuries, whether it is uh, that it truly means borrow, and that then when the Jews were chased across the Red Sea, that nulled uh, or nullified the uh, previous obligation to pay it back. Hmm. Uh, but all sorts of other explanations for when it was paid back, or uh, there was actually a case in the early 2000s of an Egyptian man trying to bring a lawsuit in international courts against the state of Israel for the silver and gold oh. taken from the Exodus. Plus interest. Plus interest. Wow. You know, 3,300 years of interest. Wow. <laughs> it's amazing what compound interest will do in 3,300 years, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. This, uh, this didn't get very far. I mean. This did not get very far. Okay. Uh, but regardless, there's there's something troubled. Uh, yeah. There's something troubling here. Can, uh, this is when it's really exciting to be in conversation with a rabbi. Things that you've always wanted to know but not <laughs> had anybody to ask. Okay, so this very silver and gold, Mm -hmm. is this the stuff that gets them in trouble when they begin melting it down and making idols? Yeah. So God gives, you know, oh, look, you're going to get this bling bling, (laughs) and then you're not really going to be able to handle it. Yep. It is. Yep, but but the other thing is... Wily wily God. It's also the silver and gold that goes into the creation of the Mishkan, the traveling, uh, um, what's the word in English, tabernacle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's the nature of, of all gift, isn't it? It can be used for the glory of God or it can be used to... Um, okay, I'm going to get super metaphorical here. Yeah, please. Is the silver and gold like the rights that we were just talking about? You know, that it is uh, a tool to the end. It is meant to hold something, but it is not the thing itself. It is not the thing itself. And therefore, when they make it into a golden calf, they're acting as if it is mm. the thing itself rather mm. than the container. Yeah, you know, this is somewhat of a tangent, but I've had this idea stuck in my head. I read an Israeli philosopher a few weeks ago who was talking about the notion of tolerance and that we tend to treat tolerance, at least in the Western world, uh, the liberal Western world, as being a value. Mm -hmm. Everyone should be tolerant. And, of course, we end up with this sort of classic critique of it. How can we be tolerant to those who are intolerant? And this philosopher has a realization that tolerance itself, we, we treat it like a goal, and it is not, in fact, a goal. It's like a peace treaty. Mm-hmm. And it's negotiated between people that the goal is a peaceful society, not a tolerant society. Tolerance is how we get to a peaceful society. It's a tolerance only works when both of us agree to be tolerant. But it's a tool, not a goal. Right. Um, hmm. And... and- 
that is really helpful to me because I have long um, been bothered by the word tolerance. Mm-hmm. To me, it is the lowest bar um, if you were doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is that limbo? Whatever, you know. Um, game where you go underneath the bar, yeah, right? Um, so I guess it would be the highest bar. I mean, you know, in that sense, I mean, uh-huh. it's the easiest thing to cross under. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's the it, it's the lowest mark that we can achieve. For me to tolerate you means that I'm standing here with any manner of thoughts in my head, but that I'm still allowing you in my presence. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's not at all our call to be in relationship with one another. Mm-hmm. That, that's actually antithetical. Um, I, I find almost that in my definition of it and, and so I needed a rewriting because in my definition tolerance is almost it, it, it feels sinful to me mm. because it feels like I'm being in a, a pedantic faux relationship with you um, where I'm tolerating you I really know better mm-hmm. I really have the more proper way of life but, mm. and, and so to, but tolerance to say you know a beginning a step towards the peace process that's a different that's a different way because mm-hmm. then it's, it's, it's very useful because if something needs to get us in the room and tolerance is what gets us in the room together, then it's a gift. Mm, right. Um, but if we consider it the end, again, it goes back to gift of the end. Is that the final vessel? Yeah. No, then it's not. It's, it, it, it actually has the ability to be very destructive, I think. Mm, right. Well, I, and when I read this passage, I think about reparations, particularly mm. reparations for slavery in this country and, and that debate, which I am not well read in. Um, but I wonder if those, if that too uh, becomes a problem because we think of reparations as the end rather than a tool to arrive at the end. And maybe the question we need to ask is what kind of country, what kind of world are we at ultimately aiming for? Um, I mean, if I, I heard this week or last, um, you know, that when Sherman, after his march through Georgia, you know, had all these ex-slaves following after his armies, and he gets to the coast, and he doesn't know what to do with them, and so he sits down with their leaders, and he says, what would you need to, to make a new life after slavery? And one of their leaders says, well, we, we need to be able to farm our own land. So that's where the 40 acres and a mule comes from, right? But the goal is not to have 40 acres and a mule. The goal is to create a new way of being in a new society after, after slavery. And, of course, you know, it lasts for a year and a half, and Lincoln is assassinated, and Johnson becomes president, and it all goes away. Um, and what what gets pushed back is just the old society. Um, so, anyway, that might be a giant aside. But, uh, is that part of the question here? Like, is this... What goal ultimately does this asking for gold and silver serve? I, I think it's so interesting, too, because the rabbinic tradition, when dealing with this question, often avoids the notion of reparations, right? They focus in on this idea of borrowing, right? It's problematic. Right. And so they deal with the apologetics for borrowing. Or uh, we have a specific example here that uh, Rashi picks up uh, on verse 2. Why is it that they had to take gold and silver? And Rashi says it's because of the promise made to Abraham. Uh, that it's actually the fulfillment of a prophecy in Genesis 15. Uh, but again, 
they're not dealing with this question of reparations, which I think to us at least seems like the most obvious idea, right? That of course they were slaves, they're do something. Well, or the other idea is that once again it's to destabilize Egypt so much that Egypt can't come after them once they're free. Mm. So just like we were talking um, the last time about the plagues that destroy the, the agricultural base of Egypt, here we have the non-agricultural economic base being destroyed. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, we use the, not here, but in lots of the other places it's referenced, they use the phrase, the emptying out of Egypt. The emptying out, yeah. But there, there's, so that's interesting because I've never read in this, I mean, you know, so ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. So if you came over and asked for an article of silver, I'd give you, you know, an antique teapot that I don't use anymore, right? Huh. I mean, I'm not thinking I'm going to, you know, empty out my savings account for you. Um, so I had never read that as a destabilizing, like the, the, um, the quantity, is that implied anywhere or is that read into the text? I mean, it's not, it, it doesn't so might so we get, my weird. We get quantity in other places too, though, because we've okay, encountered so it's, it's this two or three times uh -huh. so far. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. Uh, it's actually very polite Hebrew. Deberna, please tell the people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Well, should we, should we go on from this? Um, the, the, next, the next part of it is the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. That's interesting in and of itself, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Right, that we're seeing an empathy between the Egyptian commoners and the Israelites now. Right. We've seen that growing because we saw Pharaoh's court separating over this issue of whether to let the Israelites go. Um, so I think the status quo has already been so disturbed that Egypt is is breaking into factions. Mm. Um, and one of the factions is obviously pro-Israelite in some big degree, you know. You know, one of the one of the questions that the rabbinic commentary deals with is why is it that the other peoples who were in Egypt, who were not Egyptians, why were they also punished? Mm. Uh, and it actually becomes a meditation on how we get invested in our own, they don't use this language, but our own layer of privilege. And that even though they were suffering from the Egyptians themselves, because society had put them in a sort of a caste position above the Israelites, that they were clinging on to their own privilege and their own place in this society because they weren't on the bottom. Um, well, this is... These categories, too, are just so amorphous. Um, I was listening to some commentary yesterday about our current situation uh, that was saying that there was a change in people's identification in terms of ethnicity uh, like within the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. So some, some people of Latino or Hispanic descent 10 years ago would have claimed that descent and in this last electoral go-around claimed whiteness. Interesting. So, um, so we, you know, and they were, say, they were using this to say the Democratic Party thinks demographics are on their side, but that's only if we think of ethnicity and race as status categories. If people can choose their ethnicity or race, there's no guarantee that Democrats would do well and Republicans would wow. do badly. 
because everybody might start choosing whiteness, maybe. <laughs> everybody who can. What a fantastic way to sort of throw over the system um, to intentionally not identify with the categories that you're being asked to be put in uh -huh. um, for the purpose of... Um, oh, lots of purposes there. There's <laughs> so. so that's always been the nature of American white supremacy and American whiteness, is that it has always been... A construct. A, a construct, certainly, but also been more open to change than anyone, I think, realizes. I mean, that, that's certainly been the Jewish experience. Jews came to the United States and uh, mostly in the 1880s through 1914, and we were coming from countries where we were not a part of the us of that country. In the United States, we tend to use whiteness as, as that category. Uh, and we came here and were treated like others. And then what happened is, by and large, Jews, at least Jews who present as white, only about 80% of American Jews uh, today present as white, uh, but Jews who presented as white went through the same process of becoming ethnic whites that Italians did mm -hmm. and that Irish did. Yeah. Um, right. It's always been open. It, it opens the wrong word here. It's always been um, porous, fluid. 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 Yeah. yeah. Porous is good. Um, certainly not open. Um, but there's a trade there, right? You trade getting your own privilege for becoming an oppressor. That's right. That's that right. is a challenge, but, right? So um, I uh, was in Kenya for a while when I first got out of undergraduate school, and. What I noticed is that uh, in every level of the society, no matter where you were on the bottom rung, you always worked hard to make sure there was someone beneath you. Mm -hmm. yep. So we called it the, it's not probably a very nice term, but kick the next dog down. Yep. And the reason why is because dogs were really they were kicked. The lowest. They, they honestly, uh -huh. so, so if, if you were actually the lowest, then you would literally kick a dog. Because mm. at least the dog was lower. Uh -huh. and, and so it was that one day when I saw that happen with the woman who was a local Chang'a dealer, which is like moonshine, um, you know, and, and she, she was absolutely the lowest in the, in the village, and, and she kicked the dog, and it gave her a sense of power. And I went, oh, kick the next dog down. But we do that. I see that in privileged society all the time. You see it in boardrooms. You see it everywhere, you know. If, if, you see it in parenting. Yeah. You have a bad day, you come home and yell at the kids. You know, that it, we can catch ourselves in that. So everything that, be, I think this text does that also. Anything that's out here, um, the text is best dealt with when we bring it into our own lives. You know, so in what way um, does, and, okay, somebody's going to have to finish my sentence. Well, well <laughs> what's, I, I think if we go on to the next verse, we can see that this doesn't only work in one direction, though, which is maybe a sign of hope, because... Verse 3 is, uh, the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, Moses himself was a man of great importance in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's officials, and in the sight of the people. Mm -hmm. Now, Moses might be a complicated figure to try and make this point with, because he was raised in Pharaoh's court, but he's representing uh, a degraded people, mm -hmm. and, uh, and yet his status move is upwards rather than downwards. If, if, if that makes sense, right? It's not like we're always looking 
to, to kick the next dog down. Sometimes uh, we actively raise up people into positions of higher status than they initially held uh, for any variety of reasons. But that is also going on here, I feel. Otherwise, why would the Egyptian people be kindly disposed to give their gold and silver to the Jews? I thought it was because, like, take it, just go, just get out. You know, enough already. Enough already. <laughs> so, I mean, that's how I've always read it. So, it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I, well, I realized well, I think right. I read it too quickly. Well, no, no, no. But that might be true, and it still might be that they're they're going up in status, right? They're going up in status because God is clearly on their side, <laughs> who is making these these bad things happen mm. to everyone else, right? So they're, um, mm. so, you know, it's as if in, in where was it, Kenya? Uh, it's as if the, the dog or the moonshine dealer suddenly had an incredibly powerful advocate who starts, like, raising, raising their status his, within yeah. the culture so that everybody has to pay attention. Mm. And that, that makes everything wibbly-wobbly and no one really knows where they stand anymore in terms of status and position. Okay. Shall we continue? Yeah, sure, sure. Okay, we are now continuing the second half of verse 3. Yeah, I just read that. Oh, right? yes. Yep. So maybe we should go on to 4 unless someone wants to say anything more about Moses. Reserve the right to come back to Moses. Okay. <laughs> All right, verse 4. Um, Phyllis, do you want to keep reading or okay. should one of us? Okay. Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out through Egypt. By the way, there's a, a, a whole midrash here about why does it say about midnight? And the answer is that that way, if Moses said exactly midnight and the Pharaoh's uh, uh, advisors calculate midnight differently than God does, they won't question. <laughs> that is an iconic I, answer right I, there. Right? I don't know that there's any... <laughs> Deeper meaning we can drive from that, but yeah. in, in case they didn't, God didn't synchronize the watches exactly. right before. Exactly. <laughs> well, but midnight is also like midnight and noon are the two incredibly liminal moments of the day, right? Mm-hmm. They're neither morning, they're neither daytime or nighttime. You know, well, a.m. or p.m. maybe mm-hmm. would be more accurate to say they're they're the dividers of the day. Um, and midnight, according to uh, sort of a Jewish way of calculating time is if you take uh, from the moment of sunset until sunrise, it is the halfway point between them. It mm-hmm. is not twelve o'clock. Oh, okay. So there was so around so see, midnight, about midnight works better. About right? midnight <laughs> works better. You're never going to know. Um, or to say it differently, around the very darkest time of the night. Yeah, it is the fullest moment of. Um, the absence of the sun in the same way that noon is the fullest moment of the presence, presence of the sun. Of the sun. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I wonder if that's a time that Egyptians, if they worshipped Ra, which I'm not sure they did at this time. Well, I think they did because, oh. you know, if that's a sun god would be at its lowest that's moment of power. Interesting. So... Carl's good with these. That yeah. one, that's... Ooh. Anyway. That's... Ooh. This is just... <laughs> Just free speculation without any basis in fact, though. So any Egyptologists out there, uh, forgive me or write in. <laughs> or come on as a guest. We'd love an Egyptologist here, yes. yes. Um, Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on a throne to the firstborn of the female slave who is behind the handmill. 
and all the firstborn of the livestock. Oh boy. Oh boy. So, why have this across all segments of society? Right? Would, wouldn't it have been enough to just have Pharaoh's son die? Wouldn't that have served this purpose too? Right? If the purpose is liberation. And maybe the purpose isn't liberation. But... Why have it affect other people who are slaves? Powerless people. Yep. And the cattle, when yeah. God made... The cattle and all that God made is good. Right. Um, I mean, it, there's... There's a lot of problem in this text. There's an almost wanton cruelty to it. Mm -hmm, yeah. Um, so the cattle, at least, the, the rabbi's interpretation of this is uh, that it is, again, a part of the deconstruction of the Egyptian notion of idolatry, mm -hmm. that these were gods. Uh -huh. yeah. uh, and so they are killed as a way of showing Egypt. Um, yeah. But yeah, why the slave girl? Or the slave girl's Well, I think, child. I mean, if I were writing that, I would, again, it's a bookend, right? Okay, so who's the most powerful um, for potential, potential power? So that would be the, the heir of Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. And then what's the opposite of that? The most extreme opposite would be the slave girl who is, uh, and you know, there, there's a variety, right? I mean, slave, servant, variety of stature in and of that category but here you have the one who is at the hand mill probably being a very low position um and not in charge of anyone or anything you know so um so simply the book and to say every and everything, everything. In between to, again to highlight your point it's highlighting the middle it means it's encompassing all yeah and so the the the, the two mentioned really just are are to say everything mm -hmm. right Right. That makes sense. Um, I think also, could it have something to do with this status game that we've been talking about? Um, where one reason why we have status categories is because we think we can limit effects if we, hmm. if we sequester them off into certain statuses. Uh, and we forget the fact that the thing that happens to the least of us also happens to the most and vice versa. There's a kind of mm -hmm. interconnectedness which no amount of, of status um, level will, will change. No, please. I always like the teaching or the idea, um, if you take God's agency out of this equation for a moment, and you stop thinking of it as an active thing that God is doing. And instead, you think of this as these are the repercussions that happen when a society is built on injustice. Right? That inevitably, if a society is built on the enslavement of a people and the exploitation of a people, that everyone who is benefiting from it ultimately is going to pay a price. Not in a... Um, you deserve to be punished kind of way, but in a, it is the nature of the world that this is ultimately going to swing back on you. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a justice argument. It's a inevitability kind of argument. 
and on a, you want to respond no, to no, that because no, no. I want to go to I, it, you it, go. Bringing up go. A different, if it's bringing up a different place and I'm, I'm hesitant to even bring this up because it's it's a challenging it's a challenging point but it um, perhaps the most honest way to do a podcast such as this is to say oh what is the stuff we're afraid to say out loud yeah mm-hmm. um, and so one of the things that this brings to me and that it, when I was praying with this passage it forces me to ask does God value life in a different way than what we do yeah and um, and how hard that would be for us to really take in mm-hmm. that um, yeah, yeah. So the problem with that is that when a human being is doing that, I get really angry. You know, so there's like a long view of history that you can take where you can say, um, like after the election, I was talking to a friend. and uh, I, I think listeners know by now that I'm a flaming liberal. So, you know, just take this with a grain of salt if you're not. But I was talking uh, to a friend who was saying... Well, we'll be okay, ultimately. I mean, look back at the Roman Empire. There were terrible emperors who did horrifying things, and the emperor, <laughs> empire survived. And my response was, yeah, but that doesn't help the people who that emperor did horrible things to. Like, there's, you, you can't, like, yep. look back over history and say, sure, millions of people died, but in the end, you know, there were positive things that came of it, or we survived, so it's, it's all fine, because individuals matter. Oh, they matter to me at any rate. But it's interesting in, in our conversations, Daniel, there's a moment, I remember us having a conversation where you were talking about what sense Jews make of the Holocaust, and for some, uh, the benefit of the Holocaust was the establishment of the State of Israel. Yeah, in fact, the uh, uh, Israeli Holocaust Museum, Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, uh, this heartbreaking place that you go through this long winding maze of you know the worst of humanity it ends with this incredibly gorgeous overlook of the new Jerusalem literally uh-huh. the new Jerusalem this this built up modern vibrant Jewish city and there is clearly a redemptive message that is being sent and I always whenever I go through Yad Vashem and I find myself at the end looking out over Jerusalem it's not the redemptive feeling that I feel it is just a profound discomfort with the whole idea of redemption. Uh-huh. Um, ta Coates mentions this. We talked about this in one of the podcasts, right? That doesn't matter how much better life is for African-Americans today, there is no redemption for those who lived and died as slaves. Right. Um, I think he refers to them as uh, bricks for the road of the American machine something like that yeah. that's right yeah, yeah and, and the challenge of this passage to me is I want to think of God as almost opposite of what this passage is putting forward right uh-huh. for me I want to think that you know I might not be able to imaginatively compassionately go into the lives of, of people who died in the Holocaust or people who died in the late Roman Empire or, you know, or people who are dying today across the world. Like, I know that I have an empathy impairment where I cannot actually throw myself into mm. the imaginative world of somebody who is suffering very far away. But I want to think that God does you know that god is there with every single person all of the time and that and i've probably said this before because it's a big thing with me um 
to me, the wonder of God is not that God has greater reason than human beings. The wonder of God is that God has far, far greater compassion. The thing that I cannot reach God with is not my reason, although I can't do that either, but it's, it's emotional. You know, it's my yeah. ability to, to emote. Um, but that is not the God we are being given here. We just need it to be honest not. about that. <laughs> and so it, it brings the question to us, how do we let God be God? And, and how do we struggle to be in relationship with the true God and not the God of our own making? Um, you know, I love sunshine and roses, and I like my God to be, you know, the cheerful, happy, empowering, compassionate God, just as you were describing. But um, I, I hear a truth in, um, Daniel, what you were saying about, you know, this is the nature of oppression. This is the nature of slavery. Um, and then I also hear truth that we turn around and do the same to others. And I, I, I can't wrap my head around that. Um, and so that's part of this cycle. Um, I begin to question the cycle that we've seen play out since this time over and over again. Where is God in the midst of that? Where is um, where is the final shalom, the deep shalom? What does that look like when this seems to be the cycle that mm. is, is, is divinely set up? Though, interestingly, if you look at the rest of the Torah, the Exodus story becomes entirely utilitarian. It serves a purpose. And the purpose of Exodus is that you should always remember your moment of vulnerability to have empathy with the vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and that is the paradigm. It's the most commonly repeated commandment in the Torah. Um, this idea that the experience of having been vulnerable obligates us. Uh, and that actually becomes the whole sort of notion of the Passover Seder, is that you're supposed to gather together as a Jewish community to imagine yourselves as those who went out of Egypt. You can't talk about them. In fact, that's the greatest sin at a Passover Seder is to talk about those who went out of Egypt or my ancestors who went out of Egypt. Huh. You're instead supposed to put yourself in that position and say, I was a slave in Egypt and I went out from Egypt and I became free. And because of that, because of that experience of oppression, even the imagined mythical experience of uh, oppression, we are supposed to have empathy with those who are being oppressed. See, that's far easier to do than to... Put your to do the same for for white oppression or for the oppressor's view. So to say, I uh-huh. had slaves in this land is you know because as soon as you were saying that, I'm like, ha, huh, you know, it, it, that's hard enough. But far easier to say, you know, it's, it's far it's, it's it's hard enough to say, you know. Um, I was held as a slave. I suffered. I, you know, and to, and to really feel that. And then to say, my life, therefore, must be different. My life, therefore, m- must be one of, of reconciling love. That, that Even in the hardest moments. Because I have known the, the suffering of a slave. Of being a slave. That's hard enough. But I think even easier than saying, I, I am the one who perpetrated the oppression. Mm. And, and I wonder if... If in the reparations, that's what people are listening for. 
for the I statement, mm -hmm. not my ancestors did this and therefore, you know, take your 40 acres and your mule or whatever it is, that, but to say, um, you know, I have been a part of this. I am a part of this. And to empathize with Pharaoh and not just yes. with the Israelites. Well, yes. for me, for, 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 for a, a white middle class, um, college educated, post-college educated woman who, you know, mm. yeah, I need to make that, I'm, I need to stand with the oppressor. And that is a very challenging statement to have come out of my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not well, that happy with that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that, but no. <laughs> you know. Maybe not. Well, okay. I think there's a benefit to me for doing, for, for not putting it all on God. God fix this. Yeah. God make this right. Right. But to claim a place that, um, I don't know. So I, this is this is what's so challenging about it is one. I don't want to make any kind of false equivalency, you know. But it, it's almost as of saying uh, I I have experienced the suffering of the oppressor, but then you have to follow and say which is all self inflicted. You know, it might be real suffering at certain points, but I but it is because we choose to oppress. But it's also an acknowledgement that, it, in some ways, it goes back to this passage because if everything is connected, um, the the oppressor in the act of oppressing is inflicting upon themselves a certain type of suffering too. Right? It is the hardening of themselves, the making of themselves as cruel and therefore less human, the, the subtraction of their ability to empathize and to love. They, they are making themselves something which is not what God made them. Uh, and it, it does lead to suffering, to a very real suffering, which we can claim... But then you have to do something different with that suffering than you would if you had been oppressed, I would think. Right. And, and did we accidentally just come back to the point? Uh, <laughs> Funny how that happens. We should stop now. That's not. <laughs> but I think we're getting some really the, stuff. But, you know, the, the idea of why did they gratefully, why did the Egyptians gratefully give uh -huh. other things? Because the oppression wasn't good for them either. Right. Mm. Exactly. Though I, you know, so I was just thinking sort of the opposite. Um, the Egyptians, the common Egyptians are about to experience incredible loss, right? The death of their firstborns. The model of the Torah says we should take the moments when we have experienced oppression and use them to create empathy with the oppressed. Mm-hmm. And yet I have trouble imagining that that's the response of the Egyptians who are experiencing loss, right? Is, is their response going to be, oh gosh, this was awful. I guess it is awful what we've been doing to the Jews. Let's let them go. I, I guess for me, I think if I experienced that, it would be the opposite. I would have this experience of having lost and then I would be the victim and much less interested in anyone else's story of victimization, only my own. You're bringing back the um, rationalization, you know, when you read through the, the texts of slave owners who say, but we provided such a good life for them. Mm -hmm. They had, you know, the rationalization. So we can't presume that someone who held slaves would say, um, oh, I recognize the oppression that I was putting these people. But 
how ungrateful is what our our U.S. records show is that uh-huh. you know slave owners were like, well, how can you be so ungrateful as to when I provided your your children with clothing and you know, sure they became the victims of the great oppressor of Lincoln, mm-hmm. right. right? I mean, exactly, exactly. <laughs> they were the victims, so, and so they think, needed reparations. They, yeah, so I think you're right. They got this is, it's, yeah, this is a, it's a, it's a problematic and, and, and difficult text, and and I think when um, the loss of a child, when I've walked through that with people there is no clear thinking Mm-mm. there's there's nothing but but pain and sorrow there's no thinking um well so i think that you know that has to be recognized um that the whole land was filled with sorrow and, and i go back to i and you know it's the first bookend of of the the male children being killed you know moses's peers being being killed if um, and I had mentioned this kind of as in our, in our warm-up thoughts of, you know, if I were sort of be a grandmother of that age, right, having known, um, watched children being, being killed, if I'm watching, no matter whose child I'm watch, die, watching die, as a mother, I know this. It's the suffering of any child is a visceral response mm. for me. It's not, it's, it's, it's a... Um, there's there's a word for that. There isn't a theological word for when your gut flips over, right? Huh. There's uh, oh, hmm. okay. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> you will work on that for the next yeah, yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah. But, but it is there. It's and it it's you know it's blah, You know that you just can't you can't even breathe, hmm. right? Um, and and we're given that's part of our God given empathetic system. Um, it doesn't need to be my child in order for me to. Hmm. To, to feel, I mean, it's, it's Rachel crying out for her, the children of her ma. It's yeah, it's that deep sorrow. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, wow. And and I'm not sure that like when these people are suffering, that doesn't mean that they are incapable of empathy for other people. Um, I don't know. For some reason, I'm thinking of like the end of the Grapes of Wrath, you know, where those <laughs> people have suffered all the way through, but it ends with this this moment of, of Rose of Sharon, you know, and doing this incredibly grace filled and beautiful thing, right? And uh, it doesn't end or help her suffering in any way, really, <laughs> you know, because uh, she's lost her child. She's she's full of milk. She has the potential to feed other people, even in her loss, and she does. It's it's gorgeous. So, and I I feel like we act that way as often as as the other way. You know, suffering expands us as much as it narrows us. Uh, sometimes it really is just a choice. Mm-hmm. So, and it. It seems okay to not have a pretty bow on this passage. Yeah. It seems okay to say there, there was suffering, a deep suffering in the land. And it's what we get. If you look at verse 6, And there shall be a loud cry in, the land, in all the land of Egypt, such as never been or will ever be heard again. I knew that that were true. Yeah. But not a dog shall snarl at any of the Israelites, at man or beast, in order that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Okay, can we just pause for a little leavening or uh, question here? There are Israelite animals. 
You guys going to say leavening? you got to watch out when we're talking. Yeah, leavening, so I know. We're getting yeah, the Passover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're the unleavened. This is the unleavened. Yeah. Uh, Israelite animals? Yeah. Do they have to be circumcised? No. Oh, okay. No. For the win. For the win right there. All right, all right. Okay, sorry. (laughs) To all listeners, we apologize. (laughs) It is a reminder, I think, here that the notion of slavery that is existing in the Bible is a very different notion of slavery than the American notion of slavery. Um, and, And we're actually probably talking about a less oppressive form of slavery in the Bible than the American version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's separate, of course, from the other biblical forms of slavery, which tend to be less oppressive than this and look much more like a, a indentured servitude than what we think of as slavery. But, um, yeah. Right, they, they owned animals. Right. Uh, right, I mean, par- part of the nature of American uh, white supremacist slavery was that people of color couldn't have ownership of anything. Mm-hmm. Right. They were property. Okay. Uh, let us finish this chapter. Yes. We were really <laughs> this worried. This short chapter. No. Yeah. I, I was not worried. <laughs> Carl and I were worried, listeners, that uh, uh, we would not have enough content for today. But uh, yeah. rest assured. Uh, Phyllis, do you want to... Finish us off. Yeah. Where are we? First uh, eight. Yeah. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, Mm. left Pharaoh. I'm going to stop me there. Yeah. Come on, give us something there, Daniel. Moses is hot with anger. His his nose is burning. Yeah. Is that really the Hebrew? It's the idiom. His nose is burning. Where does what is the source of his anger? Who's he mad at? What's he mad at? I guess in my imagining of this, it is sort of in anger of righteous indignation. Right? He's telling Pharaoh, "This is about to happen to you," and he's not saying it in a pastoral kind of way. How could you have let it come to this? How could you have let it come to this? Mm-hmm. Though, you know, so interesting with Moses, too, because we talk about the bookends of the death of the firstborn and the death of the firstborn. Moses was the firstborn who didn't die. Right. Right? Oh. Um, so survivor's guilt. Oh, and he's now standing there before Pharaoh, and he's about to, uh, there's a whole, yeah. Called down the death of his own son when he was raised as a son in As Pharaoh's a son house, to so. Pharaoh, yeah. Oh, God. Ding. Well, so he's a living reminder that things actually don't have to be this way. Mm. That this cycle is not inevitable. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. Uh, Shall we finish it? Finish us off. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Interestingly, it's strengthened Pharaoh's heart here in the Hebrew. Huh. Interesting. We've we've gotten a few different terms, hardening and strengthening. 
So this again is like the most problematic thing about the entire plague's narrative is that God clearly states at several points that they are really there in order to show God's power. Mm-hmm. It is um, my wonders may be multiplied in all the land of Egypt to show my power, um, and that you know. Uh, we yeah sorry. Uh, <laughs> Hold on, let's just pause for a second. Okay, yeah. So so what bothers me is that if all these things are just to show God's power, we are once again dealing with a God who I do not recognize. Um, so I have a, a teacher, Moshe Halbertal, uh, who's an Israeli ethicist, uh, and one of the things that he completely blanking now. It was something, Moshe Habertal, power, God doesn't recognize. God's been, yeah. It's that hardening of the heart, the ethicist, like what's, are, are you going to, are you driving towards the, the ethical question of um, how, how can you kill, um, how can Pharaoh's child be killed when Pharaoh has no choice hmm. um, right. here to, to save him? Yeah, if whether Pharaoh has free will or not is an open question, mm-hmm. for one thing. But really, it's more just just about the wonders. You know, like you could say that God hardens Pharaoh's heart for all these reasons, right? To destroy Egyptian power, uh, to bring about justice, to make sure that people will really be free when they get free. Uh, you know, we've explored all of these possible reasons mm-hmm. why this happens, and we come up against a text which says, no, this is just about... God, I don't know, fronting, <laughs> God showing, God showing God's power, and that—that that is just that's always going to be disturbing to me. I don't think I'm ever going to to reconcile myself with that in this text. Um, and Phyllis, going back, you you said something about let God be God before. Um, I guess the question is, if God is kind of beyond both our moral understanding and and our a rational understanding. Um, are we allowed to look at texts like this and say, wow, they had a really different view of God than I do mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. and we're all just kind of uh, catching glimpses in the dark of, of what God is like. Or, um, so I can reject this moral understanding, right? I can say, I, I see that this is here. I'm very clear that this is not the God who I know and worship. Um, this challenges me, and that is helpful to the way I know and worship God, but I don't have to accept it. I think that that's where I ultimately end up, Mm -hmm. but I have to pause before getting there, Mm. and I have to say, where is this text embodied in my own life? Mm. Um, Where have I been an oppressor of my own making? Yeah. Where have um, I sought relationship with God to affirm what I already believe and know versus being open to listening to God's leading ways? Um, it, it's, I think, um, and then I also have the voice of uh, Stephen Cook, my Old Testament professor, who said um, he, would get, he got to a text, it wasn't this one, but he got to a text similar to this. And he stopped, and he, after reading it, he looked up to us, and he said, Remember, 
a lot of what is written in scripture is to tell you how not to be in relationship with God versus how to be mm. in relationship with God. So what happens when we lead the relationship with God instead of allowing God to lead relationship mm. with us? And, and so a lot of what has happened here is the original not allowing God to lead and, and, and to hardening the heart. So the hearts already had hardened or strengthened before um, because the people weren't being let go and, you know, whatever, and go back it up as much as you want to back it up. So in, in my own life, I can get to places where I am not the agent of my own um, liberation, yeah. but rather my own oppression. Mm. Um, and, and so it's helpful to me to, to not discard the text too early, but, and then after I struggle, then to say, and then how does this inform me about the God I know and believe in and deep, deeply know um, in my own life? Oddly, it brings us back around to that question of whether to tolerate something or to love, right? Because if, if one just dismisses this, one is just kind of tolerating, tolerating it. The passage. You know, here it is in Scripture. In order That's to be at it, peace yeah. with Scripture, I will tolerate this, but I won't deeply engage it, it and let it change me. And, and what we're being called to is something far greater than mere toleration. Because when, when we do that, we, do not serve, we don't serve our people well. Because no matter how many times passages like this are read, I think people still think that once you know and love God, then all will be well in your life. Mm-hmm. And it's just the magic wand to a happy life. Right. And when life doesn't work out that way, then people have no choice but to reject God. God, therefore that God of my own making didn't act as the God that I made would have acted. Therefore Mm. there is no God. Right. And so we have to engage this God. Right. Like it or not. Um, Sorry. I remembered what I was going to say earlier that uh, I had a teacher at the Shalom Harman Institute in Jerusalem, Tal Becker, who's been the chief international lawyer for peace talks for Israel for the last 15 years. Talk about a thankless and frustrating job. Um, but he has a lesson that he teaches that he raises up about the change in what we mean by peace. We don't even realize how radically our notion of peace today is different from the notion of peace that humans have had throughout human history. Mm-hmm. That the only concept of peace we ever really had was the Pax Romana. The notion that there would be one power that was so great that it could not be challenged and therefore there would be peace. Right. right, certainly the image of peace that we find in most um, most sort of classical biblical images of peace, right? It's the whole notion of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Right? If there's the kingdom of God, then there's no earthly power that can challenge it. And we've really changed what we mean by peace today. Because after World War I, after the establishment of the League of Nations, and certainly with the United Nations, peace has become not about having one power that is so unquestionably strong that it enforces peace everywhere, but instead this, nation, this notion that uh, sort of good fences make good neighbors. Mm-hmm. That peace means internationally recognized and respected borders of sovereignty. And it's a whole different idea of peace. And, that, and that's how we understand peace, right? Peace is when countries get along with each other. But that's not how the Bible understands peace. And so if we, we think of it through that lens, I think what we can end up with is an understanding that says that the notion of so that God's glory can be magnified or whatever the, my marvels may be multiplied in the land of Egypt or, or however they phrase it in the various uh, verses that we look at, 
is about getting people to a place where they can let go of their own sense of controlling power and give that power over to the divine instead, that classic wow. notion of peace. I don't know if I like this, um, but I think there's something to it here in the text. That is really good. I, I, think, it actually, I think it actually serves as the bridge to, between 11 and 12, chapter 11 and 12, the huh. giving over of the power. Hmm. Yeah. How else would you leave? I feel like we should end right there. I There's our cliffhanger moment. Oh, this is Come beautiful. back same time next week. Yeah, like Batman. So, Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus, is produced by Daniel Bogart and Carl Stevens, and is made possible by Christ Church Cathedral, the very place where we're recording today, and the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Lost in the Wilderness is part of Exodus, a DSO Big Read, which you can learn more about by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album, All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, you can find me at prayerbookart.com when you go online. Phyllis, where should people look for you? Um, Saint-wc.org. Great. And Daniel? I'm just going to give another plug uh, that I am available as a rabbi in residence to come out to uh, any of the churches in the diocese. So if you're around, I would love to come out. Wonderful. Thank you so much uh, to both of you. And Phil, thank you for being our guest today. We'll try to get you back on. It was awesome. All right. Goodbye, dear, dear listeners.